Hello and welcome to I Don't Know The Podcast, episode 20, Alistair Crowley. This week we look into the dark and mysterious world of occultist Alistair Crowley. Poet, mountaineer, pervert, Alistair Crowley was known as all those things, but he was also described as the wickedest man in the world. He was also considered to be the world's top-ranked Satanist. But was he a truly evil man? Was he in league with the devil? Or was he just a chronic masturbator? I don't know. But whatever you believe about Alistair Crowley, his life was a catalogue of adventure, magic and beastliness. So do what thou wilt and listen on to find out what else I don't know about celebrated occultist and pervert Alistair Crowley. Alistair Crowley was born in 1875 to a wealthy and deeply religious family in Royal Leamington Spa. His family owned a brewery, Crowley Alton Ales. In 1887, when Alistair was only 11 years old, his father died of tongue cancer, which I didn't even know was a thing. Crowley idolised his father, and after his death and inheriting a substantial wealth, Alistair began to behave badly at school. He began smoking, masturbating, and having sex with prostitutes at school. He even caught gonorrhea from one of these school sex hookers. He went on to study philosophy and literature at Trinity College, Cambridge. At this time, Alistair travelled to Russia. He claimed it was to learn Russian to help him follow a diplomatic career. Some, however, believe he was working under the orders of the British Secret Service. In 1897, Alistair suffered a serious illness. Once recovered, he had serious thoughts about his own mortality and the futility of all human endeavour. He dropped the idea of a diplomatic career and started writing poetry, including a book of erotic poetry called White Stains. When Celia comes, tis earthquake's hour. The bed vibrates like kettle drums. It is a grand display of power when Celia comes. When Celia farts, my hasty nose sniffs up the fragrance of her parts. Shamed are the violets and the rose when Celia farts. Wow. Alistair's poetry was so pornographic that he published the book in a foreign country under an alias to avoid prosecution under Britain's obscenity laws. He dropped out of Cambridge without a degree, and that's when shit got weird.
happen and just let them die. Pursue a life dedicated to sex and magic, no matter what the consequences. While Crowley was at Cambridge, he had become more and more fascinated with the occult and magic. He had heard there were secret societies that practiced dark and filthy rituals, and he desperately wanted to be part of this. Armed with a considerable trust fund, Alistair finally found what he had been looking for. The Golden Dawn was a secret society dedicated to the study and practice of the occult. Its exclusive upper-class membership included many famous artists and intellectuals of the day. The Golden Dawn. Members included Bram Stoker and W.B. Yeats, who was a much better poet than Alistair. He rose through the ranks, becoming exceptional in their magic rituals. For Crowley, who was now referring to himself as the Beast 666, the Golden Dawn turned out to be a bitter disappointment. He thought that they were playing at magic and tried to take the society over. He clashed with the poet W.B. Yeats, who was a prominent member, calling him a lank, dishevelled demonologist. I say, I bet he dropped his monocle. Crowley decided to leave the Golden Dawn behind. He felt their magic was too tame. Crowley decided to perform the Abra Melon, a black magic ritual that no magician had dared undertake for centuries. Crowley's so dedicated to performing the Abramelin ritual that he actually goes to the length of seeking out and finding the perfect place and buying a house to do the actual ritual in. Nothing else, just actually to do this ritual. And it's uh, in Loch Ness, Beleskin House. This is such an extreme thing to do. This is not a game. He, I think he's trying to break down, he's trying to push further than anyone else has been before. At the moment, his yardstick is the Golden Dawn, so he's already shattering that completely. That's Abramelon. Nothing to do with Abracadabra. This is much harder. It is said that the ritual's duration is 6 to 18 months, involving daily prayer, chastity and soberness. The aim is to summon demons is regarded as extremely dangerous. It is possible that a demon could be let loose and possess the magician. The Abramelin ceremony has an introduction which states that nobody should perform this ceremony. Red rag to a bull with Alistair. Maybe it was opposite day. Crowley, at a time when he did it, had a lot of determination to delve as deeply as he could into the occult he certainly did do uh, partially the Abramelin ceremony in the house, which is to do with conjuring up one's guardian angel. Um, but in order to do that, you've got to release a lot of other spirits of one sort or another. Um, even in broad daylight, the room he was working in became almost pitch dark and he had to light candles and this sort of thing to continue what he was, what he was about. Remember, he was in Scotland, which is dark most of the time. 
Crowley, in his absolutely typical way, broke off the ritual. He just couldn't be bothered to go on, because it really is pretty exhausting, you know, living on bread and water and, and getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning with invocations and all kinds of things. It's nothing so much as like being a monk, only harder. And so Crowley gave it up. Well, personally, I don't blame him. Having to get up early, no booze, living in Scotland. It was at this point that Crowley met Rose Kelly, a young society lady. Courting scandal, he married her the day after they met and took her off to Egypt for their honeymoon, leaving the Abramelin ritual unfinished. Well, he works quick. He drops ritual and marries immediately. And he hasn't even knocked her up. But here's what Alistair wrote about the honeymoon. The honeymoon was a period of uninterrupted debauchery. Once in the first three weeks or so, Rose took some trifling liberty. I recognized the symptoms and turned her up and spanked her. She henceforth added the qualities of a perfect wife to those of a perfect mistress. Yep, sounds like my honeymoon, if my wife was writing about it. I wanted my wife to see what a great magician I was. We went accordingly after dinner with candles. I had with me a small notebook in which was written the preliminary invocation of the Goetia. The Goetia is used for summoning demons. He certainly knows how to show a gal a good time, but it seems Rose didn't react well. Rose got into a strange state of mind. I had never seen anything like it before. She kept on repeating dreamily, yet intensely, they are waiting for you. They are waiting for you. Who? Who could it be? When Crowley asked Rose who was waiting, she kept repeating that it was Horus, an Egyptian god. Crowley was puzzled and irritated by his wife's bizarre behavior. She knew nothing of magic and even less of Egyptology. Surely she, of all people, was not receiving a message from the gods. Yeah, just who does she think she is? She hasn't spent years studying and jacking off into pentagrams. Crowley decided to take Rose down to the Egyptian Museum to test what she was saying. Rose had never visited the museum before. To Crowley's amazement, she rushed through rooms full of ancient artifacts until suddenly she stopped dead. There, there he is. It was an image of the same God she claimed to have seen in her vision. Crowley was stunned. What could this mean? Rose told him that they had to go back to the hotel room and wait to find out. And order room service. But this occasion did stick with Alistair. He opened himself up to a power that never ever left him, which he developed. And I believe he was the real thing. I believe that people that came into contact with him came into contact with that which was supernaturally evil. He had given himself under that demonic control and that demonic control could now affect him and could work through him. Well, it is a good excuse. Crowley was about to receive a revelation that would make him the prophet of a new religion, giving him a charter to pursue a life dedicated to sex and magic, no matter what the consequences. Well, you've got to have a hobby. Alistair has spent years studying and performing rituals, but none had provided him with what he really wanted. He wanted to communicate with a demonic entity. He felt only then could he become as great as he wanted to be. 
At midday on the 4th of April, 1904, in a hotel room in Cairo, what he had been waiting for all his life was about to happen. Crowley heard an unearthly voice from over his left shoulder. For one hour, at precisely the same time over the next three days, Crowley said that the voice dictated to him the book of the law, the work that would become the Bible of his new religion. The book of the law. This would become his greatest work, just not as filthy as White Stains. Actually, it might be. I haven't read it. The book of the law, it just really is ripping up everything. It's ripping up the Bible, it's ripping up the Koran, you know, it, it's uh, ripping up all the holy books and saying, we're starting fresh now. This is the word, this is the word of the new eon. We're gonna peck out the eyes of Christ on the cross. It's very, very blasphemous. It's all about liberation. It's all about having no restrictions at all. You follow your path, you follow your goal in life, and you do that above all else. Maybe I should read it. The book of the law states, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. In other words, people have the right to determine exactly how to live their lives, regardless of moral and religious boundaries. I'm beginning to like this new religion. Crowley saw himself as the prophet of this new creed, and a year later showed just how far he was prepared to take it when he set off to conquer one of the world's highest mountains. Crowley had started climbing as a teenager, scaling the perilous chalk cliffs of Beachy Head. In 1905, a year after the Great Revelation in Cairo, Crowley led the first attempt on the world's third highest mountain, Kanchenjunga. But the belief in the absolute supremacy of his will was to have terrible consequences. He certainly does have an exciting life. Working for the Secret Service, fucking in pyramids, and now he's a mountaineer. Crowley was, in point of fact, a very good climber. He could have become known as one of the great climbers. But in this major expedition, the Kanchenjunga expedition, he deserted the rest of the party because they'd had some kind of a quarrel, and the quarrel was largely due to the fact that they didn't like the way that he tried to boss everybody around. And, of course, Crowley simply went off saying, you know, all right, you bastards, if you don't want me, then, you know, that's too bad. Screw you guys. I'm going home. The rest of the party was descending the mountain face when an avalanche struck. Crowley was alleged to have ignored the cries of the stricken men, preferring to stay in his tent, drinking tea. Four people were killed in the tragedy. Wow, that's a dick move. Crowley more or less saw what had happened and just let them die. Now, that's uh, sort of really unpleasant because he knew perfectly well, you know, that as a climber, um, it was his job to help them and, of course, that finished him, as far as the climbing world was concerned. From then on, he was untouchable. So no more climbing for Alistair, or those other four guys. Unmoved by the tragedy, Crowley set off on a trek across China with his wife Rose and their baby girl. Reaching Vietnam, he abandoned his wife and took up with a mistress back in Shanghai. Rose was unable to cope on her own, and the child died of typhoid. Crowley then deserted Rose for good, blaming her for the death. In despair, she went mad. Poor Rose! You see, when your parents tell you not to get involved with a magician, there's a reason they're saying that. 
But for the human honey badger that is Alistair Crowley, life went on. Back in England, Crowley found his first disciple, Victor Neuberg, a young Cambridge poet. In the case of Neuberg, there was definitely a peculiar kind of homosexual relation, and I'm not just now talking about the ordinary physical thing. Neuberg was in love with him. That's what, that's what I mean. Uh, he got mixed up with Crowley. Crowley saw there a far weaker character, um, plunged on Neuberg, and of course got, dragged him into this whole business of black magic. Look out, Neuberg. This is not going to end well. Neuberg was subjected to a series of sadistic acts designed to test the poet's dedication to the beast. The two set off to Algeria to perform Enochian magic, a dark and dangerous set of occult rituals. And I'm guessing the danger will mostly come Neuberg's way. They walked deep into the Sahara for two days until they reached the point of exhaustion. Disorientated by the effects of the desert and copious quantities of hashish and mescaline, Crowley and Neuberg embarked on the climax of the ritual, summoning Koronzon, the dweller of the abyss, seen within the occult world as the devil himself. Basically, what these two guys were trying to do, while hepped up on goofballs, was to open the gates of hell. He knew, and this sounds a weird thing to say, he knew that magic works. We don't believe in it nowadays, but in point of fact, all that you're really doing is trying to persuade forces that do exist outside this world to come into this world. And to do so, you have to serve as that passage yourself to a large extent. And that's the reason the magician gets inside a circle and stays inside the circle. Yep, I would definitely stay in that circle. Now, Crowley liked playing with fire. He drew the circle around Neuberg and he himself was outside the circle. Well, magicians don't do that. It, it really is dangerous. You know, people can go mad. Or in Alistair's case, madder. Um, they, they suddenly hear voices inside their heads that they can't get rid of. Now, um, Crowley, fortunately, was such a bastard that he, he was more or less immune. <laughs> bastard is putting it lightly. Crowley gets seized with a passion to perform a sexual act. And Crowley is the passive partner in the, in the sex act. And at the point of orgasm, Crowley has like a mystic revelation. He sees a blinding white light. He seems to commune with the secret chiefs, and he suddenly realises that sex can be a sacrament, can be in praise of the gods. It's like a short cut. It's a short circuit to go straight in to achieve whatever you want to achieve magically. Is that why people shout, oh, God? The effect of the rituals left Neuberg a shattered man. He never fully recovered from the experience. But for Crowley, this was the final piece in the jigsaw. He had now united his belief in the power of sex and magic into one occult vision. So Neuberg is completely fucked up, but again, Alistair doesn't care because he got what he wanted out of it. Armed with his new knowledge of sex magic, Alistair left the crying and bleeding Neuberg and headed to New York City. There, he would do more sex stuff, and he wrote about it. I had a Dutch prostitute, a muscular wolf type, with a fine, fat, juicy yoni. She inspired in me a magnificent effort. I guess he is one to blow his own trumpet. While Alistair was getting his dick wet in any way he could over New York City, the First World War broke out. 
Alistair offers his services to British Secret Service. But for some reason, they didn't want to hire a syphilitic, drugged-up madman. So, in another screw-you-guys move, he started writing propaganda for the Germans. Crowley began issuing propaganda on behalf of the Germans for German-owned American newspapers. Crowley's defence being that he was deliberately uh, writing such absurd nonsense that it made the German cause look uh, ridiculous to the American people. Hmm, if you say so. But he did also write about this, particularly the Zeppelin bombing raids. The Germans have decided to make the damage as widespread as possible. A great deal of damage was done in Croydon, where my aunt lives. What? I live near Croydon. Unfortunately, her house was not hit. Count Zeppelin is respectfully requested to try again. The exact address is Eaton Lodge, Outram Road. So he doesn't like his aunt then? Denounced by the British press as a traitor, Crowley decided that it was time to fulfill his role as a prophet of the religion that he now called Thelema. Crowley needed a place to practice Thelema and set off across Europe to find somewhere away from the prying eyes of Edwardian England. He eventually stumbled across a ramshackle farmhouse in Cefalu, northern Sicily. Unprepossessing as it was, this was to be Crowley's temple. So the traitorous Alistair hightails it to Sicily with a ragtag bunch of followers. Crowley set up the abbey in 1920 with his latest mistress, Leia Herzig, their newborn baby, and a motley band of followers from around the world. Crowley met Leia in New York when she was only 19. She was totally dedicated to him and was prepared to do anything he asked of her. Oh dear. I dedicate myself wholly to the great work. I will work for wickedness. I will kill my heart. I will be shameless before all men. I will freely prostitute my body to all creatures. I think she's going to be the female Neuberg. The disciples performed sex magic rituals under the influence of hashish, opium and cocaine. They even had a dog called Satan. I wonder what breed Satan was. As far as Crowley was concerned, it was an experiment in a different kind of living. There were piles of drugs on the table. Um, the um, children ran around naked and were allowed to sort of come into the room while adults were having sex. Crowley believed that if you gave man absolute freedom to do exactly what he wanted, this could do nothing but good. Isn't that what everyone wants? Freedom and piles of drugs? It was evidently not the most pleasant place to stay. The members were prone to disease, discomforts of various kinds, most of which could only be alleviated by uh, faith in Crowley himself and the ready supply of drugs, which uh, Crowley made sure were readily available. Amongst all of this, you have to imagine that there was also a family atmosphere, albeit uh, a very dysfunctional one. Uh, um, think Charles Manson rather than the Waltons, I think. I never liked the Waltons. They always seem so smug. Aaron Paramore first came to Sicily on a kind of occult pilgrimage and was amazed at what he found inside the now derelict abbey. Yeah, it's going to take a walk through. Okay, now. 
This guy was told by the locals not to go to the property as they believe it to be cursed. Stab me or demonic. Small. To my brain. Suck me in. Cognac. On the walls in there, there are lots of occultish and sinister looking writings. This is the place that Crowley called the nightmare room. Disciples were given drugs and made to sit and look at Crowley's pornographic paintings on the walls. Yeah, that sounds like most of my dreams. The idea was that by doing this, they would lose all their fear and repression. The downside being they get a boner every time they smoke a bowl. As people at the Abbey continued to lose their inhibitions, the sex magic rituals Crowley asked them to perform became more and more extreme. Probably the most controversial and lurid episode in the whole Chefalu period is the attempted copulation between uh, one of his scarlet women, Leah Hersig, and a goat. Oh. Now, supposedly, at the time of orgasm, the goat was to mount Leah Hersig, and at the time of orgasm, it was to have its throat cut. You can wonder whether what he was trying to do was, A, to test the dedication of his disciples to see how far he could push them. And don't forget the dedication of the goat. Perhaps he also thought it would be a good show. I mean, Crowley was dedicated to novelty, and I dare say that would be a novelty to most people. Yes, I remember a similar show on a trip to Tijuana. I regret taking the family now. The goat, the symbol, of course, of Satan, um, normal man and woman is, is repulsed by this sort of thing and we wonder what actually can bring human beings to this and I think what had happened was that in the Abbey they had sated or satisfied so many of their appetites that all the time they were going just that bit further until eventually they were copulating with animals um, and I suppose when you get to that stage, it is uh, symbolic of the depth of evil. I think it's symbolic that they're just perverts. Despite the goat fucking, things were getting really bad at the Abbey. Crowley's drug addiction was getting worse, and Leah had a nervous breakdown. We don't know what was happening with Satan the dog. But Alistair felt his work had to continue. Raoul Loveday was an Oxford graduate who broke away from his middle-class background and came to Sicily with his wife. He wrote to his parents that he was happier at the Abbey than he had ever been. But Loveday fell ill and died after allegedly drinking the blood of a cat sacrificed in a ritual. His wife left Sicily and went straight to the British press. Now, I'm no fan of cats, but for fuck's sake... Crowley's little squalid piece of heaven collapsed due to um, one of the earliest tabloid attacks, which rather than attacking Crowley's abbey as being the kind of mind control camp it was, which probably wouldn't have made sense to people at this time, it portrayed this kind of dark, uh, devil-worshipping, uh, orgy-ridden uh, den of human sacrifice, which it, which it wasn't. Eventually, of course, it was Mussolini who... Uh, kicked his little crew out. That's right. What was happening at the Abbey was so fucked up that the fascist government of Benito Mussolini deported them. For many of the people at the Abbey, what they did there blighted the rest of their lives. Deserted by Crowley, 
Leah Herzig sank into prostitution. Other disciples went mad. One committed suicide. The dream was over. Crowley was now public enemy number one, the wickedest man in the world. So yet again, Alistair just walks off and leaves his followers with their lives in tatters. But this time, things weren't going particularly well for him either. The last years of the great beast's life were spent living from hand to mouth. His fortune was long gone and his disciples had deserted him. He moved from one set of temporary lodgings to another and finally ended up in a boarding house in Hastings. His life of excess had left him with nothing but chronic heroin addiction and infamy. And a lot of great memories. But now he's in Hastings, a seaside town where old people go to retire. But Alistair wasn't retiring or giving up. In 1934, Crowley began a libel case against a writer who described him as a black magician. He was desperate for money and believed he might be awarded damages. Examples of Crowley's pornographic poetry were read out in court, and then the wife of Rao Loveday, the young man who died in the Abbey of Tholima, gave evidence of Crowley's depravity. Oh dear. The judge was appalled, saying that in 40 years of justice, he had never heard of such wickedness. Crowley lost the case and ended up bankrupt. But even after such a humiliating defeat, his extraordinary magnetism was undiminished. After his loss in court, he was approached by a lady called Deirdre McCallum. And she says she wants to have his baby, even after hearing his poetry. So they carry out sex rituals to create a magical child. Well, after he, he took me in his arms on the doorstep, that beastly lodging which had lace curtains in the window, I don't know where it was now. He, he said, I want you and I want your child. Well, I wanted a child. And I, I just started from then. And then he came round and saw me off. And he had to give up drugs, pretty well give up drugs for six months, six weeks, um, three months. She must have been quite something for him to give up drugs. I will point out that she's drinking straight scotch throughout this interview. Because he couldn't, he, he couldn't conceive very easily. Well, I suppose I conceived, he did the other thing, but... <laughs> <laughs> and they did have a child, which they named Alistair Ataturk. And it was said that Alistair actually loved this child, unlike his previous children. And it was at this time that Alistair started to question what he'd done with his life. Have I ever done anything of value? Or am I a mere trifler, existing by a series of shifts of one kind or another, a wastrel, a coward, a man of straw? I can find no answer whatsoever, the obvious verdict being guilty every time. He was starting to lose his powers in every way. From an early age, Crowley had been obsessed with sex. He came to believe that it was the key to magical fulfillment. So when he wrote in his diary, weak erection, he knew that the end was near. Yep, if you're writing that in your diary, you're probably in a bad way. There was no tears pouring down AC's face whatsoever. We talked the whole day before, and the whole the next day that he died until he went into a coma which he did very quietly. And then the day after when he did die, 
there was this strange thing that happened again with the curtains. Very still day, and the curtains blew out across the room, and there was a great peal of thunder, which was, I think, the gods greeting him. And that was it. On December 1st, 1947, Alistair Crowley, the Great Beast 666, died, aged 72. His funeral was attended by only a few people, and excerpts from the Book of the Law were read out. The tabloid press described it as a black mass. Episode 20, Alistair Crowley, the Epilogue. So, what have we learnt this week? We learnt that Alistair was quite the poet. When Celia comes, tis earthquake's hour. The bed vibrates like kettle drums. It is a grand display of power when Celia comes. When Celia farts, my hasty nose sniffs up the fragrance of her parts. Shamed are the violets and the rose when Celia farts. We learnt that Alistair was a great mountaineer, but a shitty person. Crowley more or less saw what had happened and just let them die. And we learnt that Alistair was an animal lover, but not in a good way. The attempted copulation between uh, one of his scarlet women, Leah Hersig, and a goat. Whatever you may think of Alistair Crowley, he did lead an absolutely incredible life. It would be almost impossible to cover everything, and I don't think anyone's ready for a five-hour-long episode of this podcast. His legacy is equally amazing. Scientology's L. Ron Hubbard was a devotee of Thelema, and Alistair was a huge influence on him. There are still followers of Thelema all over the world. Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin bought Boliskin House. Ozzy Osbourne wrote a song about him. And he even appears on the cover of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. In a BBC poll, he placed 73rd in a list of 100 Greatest Britons. While his story is incredible, I'm not sure he should be celebrated. He was incredibly heartless and cruel, and basically acted like the overprivileged rich kid that he was, but to a much more depraved extent. I thought about doing an episode about him a long while ago, and I was going to visit all the locations that were close by to me, but obviously I can't right now. Since I couldn't cover everything, maybe sometime in the future I'll take another look at this syphilitic, drugged-up pervert. If you enjoy this podcast, then share it with your friends and let me know. Join the Facebook group and the Instagram, and you can email me at idontknowpod at outlook.com. Special thanks to our logo creator, Raymond Roel of Project Raven Creative. See all his links in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and come back next week to find out what I don't know. Good morning, Mr. Jones. We've been waiting for.